As the reading went today, or as you could maybe infer, today's sermon is about prayer. I'd like to open with prayer, if you don't mind. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word where you reveal yourself, your plans for us, our problems, your solution. I pray, Lord, as I speak today that you'd be honored, that uh, you'd receive praise and glory. I pray, Lord, too, that it would be right, it would be truth. I'd ask, Lord, too, if anything I say is not right or is not true, that you would uh, strike it from the memory of those listening. Uh, just thank you. ask that you'd be with me, too, as I speak. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd just like to say good morning. Thanks for coming. Thank you to those who are listening online. If you want to take a moment and greet those around you, we haven't done this for a while. Say hello to the body. It's been a long time. I'm going to have to please uh, find your seats, find your seats, please. You got to leave a little time for me to preach here. Amen. Thanks. Thanks, Harry. There's going to be some audience participation here, so don't settle down. Good morning. My name's Craig Jepson. Brian Schmidt and I are the two elders here at the DeWitty Free Church. My wife, Pat, is here, a 44, married 44 years, as well as my mother. A friend of mine once said that when we meet Jesus face to face, for our accounting of our lives, we won't be able to have a six-point power presentation on why we did the things we did in life. We won't be able to have our mother there either. As I thought about that, I'm not sure it'd be a benefit in my case to have my mother there. <laughs> my fear is that most of her testimony would be used by the prosecution. <laughs> I was not the best of uh, children by any standard. What I'd like to talk about is prayer. As I address you, please remember, I'm not up here because I'm better looking than you, smarter than you, holier than you, etc., etc., etc. But rather, <laughs> just you, Junior. But rather, to quote C.S. Lewis, think of me as a fellow patient who have uh, been admitted a little earlier. I would like to share what I've learned since my arrival. Also, thank you for those who have and will preach during pastor sabbatical. It's a humbling and daunting task. So fasten your seatbelts and 
Let's get started. Any good student of the Bible will tell you, when you study God's Word, you should always look at the context. The context for today's sermon is God and His Word, the Bible. The God of the Bible is a triune God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This trinity is something unlike anything we know or can explain. So I'm not going to try, because it would take a lot of time, and in the end, I might just muddy the waters. Suffice it to say that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and he sent his son Jesus to earth to reveal himself to us and for Jesus to die for our sins. have to find my place here. John 3.16 states that. The Bible is God's word. It's unerring. It's true. It's God's love letter to the world where he reveals himself, his characters, his plans, our plight, his solutions, our hope. The Bible is God's owner's manual on how things work. I will be using the Bible to support what I am about to say since it is its own best commentary. At the age of 66 years, five months, I am convinced more than ever that the Bible is true and there is great, great wisdom and value when you read, study, and practice the principles, the precepts, and the plans within. So what is prayer? A simple definition, prayer is a conversation with God. Prayer is how a person develops a personal relationship with God, the creator of the universe, who created you, who knows you, who loves you. With prayer, we are able to develop a heart-changing relationship with God. It's a two-way street where we listen and speak to God, and God listens and speaks to us. Prayer is all about God. It starts with and ends with God. Max Lucado says, the power of prayer is the one who hears it and not in the one who says it. Our prayers do make a difference. I've told the story before about an Iowan who went to Alaska to live in the bush for 20 years. They did a TV documentary about his life. At one, pillow, at one point, this fellow commented about meeting a grizzly bear. He said, when man meets the bear, the bear thinks one thing and the man thinks another. But the only thing that really matters is what the bear thinks. <laughs> well, that's a theological metaphor for man and God. When man meets God, man thinks one thing and God thinks another. And you can finish it. But this, but the only thing that matters is what God thinks. Amen. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian that lived in the mid-1800s, said, The function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. I recently heard a sermon on WDLM, the Moody Bible Channel station, where a pastor said, God is not concerned about our comfort. He's concerned about your character. A case in point would be the Apostle Paul, who referred to himself as the least 
of the apostles and who wrote 13 letters that make up much of the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 8, he writes that he prayed to the Lord, and it's more at he begged three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And each time Jesus responded, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. While this thorn, whatever it was, had to be debilitating and a hindrance in Paul's ministry, the Lord did not heal it or take it away. Instead of healing, Jesus gave greater grace, built stronger character, and used it to humble Paul. This humility gave Paul a greater ability to empathize with others. We are all human, much like Paul. When we face a thorn in the flesh, trials and hurts, which we all do and will, our inclination is to pray for their removal and for our deliverance so we can be comfortable again. But as in Paul's case, this is not God's purpose. You see, the problem with prayer for comfort is that it's centered on self and based on our perceived wants and needs and not on what God wants and what God knows we need. Remember, He created us. He knows us for what we were created for. He knows what is in our best interest. If our focus is on God as the center of our prayer life, we, like Paul, should become more mature Christians. We should be building Christ-like character that demonstrates our faith to a watching world and all the while being prepared for further ministry for the Lord. As you read in God's Word about Paul's life and ministry, you will see that this is exactly what happened and how mightily God used Paul to further his kingdom here on earth. Another pastor I recently listened to said, a lot of people will tell you God never gives us more than we can handle. He went on to say, that's not so. God often, many times, gives us way more than we can handle, but never more than He can handle. Never more than He can handle. I believe this is real truth here, in that when we experience situations we can't handle, we are compelled to cry out and seek God for help and not rely on self. One of the greatest problems Christians face is the spiritual battles that come with choosing Christ as our Lord and Savior. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places. Take a moment, think about that. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of unseen world, and against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Now you tell me, how in a worldly sense are we going to do battle or even begin to know where to start when fighting such an enemy. 
<laughs> you want to know you want to know the short answer we can't but god can once a believer comes to this realization it should compel them to really ramp up their prayer life and ask god for help and guidance after hurricane katrina hit in louisiana in 2005 I had an opportunity to go to New Orleans on a mission trip and to help, I didn't do that on purpose, clean up <laughs> with some brothers and sisters from Davenport E Free Church. Shortly before Katrina hit, Billy Graham had retired from speaking, but in light of the devastation and destruction, Mr. Graham decided to go to New Orleans and speak one last time. Our group heard about this on the way down and decided to put in a few extra hours on the road so we could attend. He spoke in the Civic Center right next to the Superdome. The place was packed. We were seated in the nosebleed section way up in the back behind Mr. Graham and the podium. As it turned out, I was seated next to a young brother of color with his wife and two young daughters. When I introduced myself as a brother in Christ, he grabbed my hand, and I will never forget what he said. Ha! My name is Hollis, and we's in a war, and we's got to stick together. I'd ask you to look next to the person next to you and say, My name is, and we's in a war, and we's got to stick together. You can do that now. You're a rough group to preach to here. Okay. <laughs> Harless obviously knew about Ephesians 6:12 as well as 2 Corinthians 10:3 and 4, which reads, "We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy the false arguments." That's the New Living Translation. The New International Version reads like this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Harless was wise beyond his years. In fact, the fact that he was attending such a gathering and that he had his wife and children in tow spoke volumes about where he was seeking his help and guidance in this spiritual war. Please listen as I read an article I recently found as I prepared for this sermon. It puts an exclamation point on 2 Corinthians 10, 3, and 4 regarding God's use of mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. The article is titled, Skipping Grace by a Lady Named Fair Adkins. It was in the uh, Focus on the Family magazine that comes out every two months. This, as I, as I picked up the mail, I threw it open, and this is the first article it opened to and I read. When my family and I moved to a new state, our neighbors welcomed us with open arms. They had neighborhood get-togethers and potlucks, and we were invited to their frequent gatherings. At our first event, my husband joined the men in the living room, and my daughter headed to play with the other children. I ended up in the kitchen trying to fit in and make new friends. 
When it was time to eat, everyone came together, got their plates of food, and started eating as they continued their conversations. Standing and holding my plate, I didn't give much thought to anything but getting to know my new neighbors until I heard a child's voice behind me. Mommy, she won't eat, the child said to her mother. Why not, the woman asked. Is something wrong? She won't eat because we didn't say a blessing. The realization quickly dawned on me. They were talking about my six-year-old daughter. As I stood there with my mouth full of food, I was so proud of her and so ashamed of myself. No one there knew I was a Christian. But in that moment, they all knew my daughter was. Christianity was not as prominent in our new northern town as it had been in our previous city in the Bible Belt. I had even heard one of our neighbors vocalize her disgust over the born-again stuff being pushed down her throat. Now I held my breath to see how this group would react to my daughter's stand. Amazingly, everyone stopped eating. And someone asked my daughter to thank God for the food. It was a beautiful gesture from kind people. And for two years we lived in that neighborhood. Everyone respected my daughter's desires to pray before meals. I'll never forget our last neighborhood gathering. It was Christmas dinner. Our next door neighbor hosted. The same neighbor who had initially announced her opposition to anyone who tried to tell her about Jesus and becoming a Christian. With all our neighbors gathered around her table, our host instructed everyone to hold hands as we thank God for the meal. Through a six-year-old child, God had an entire neighborhood, had an entire neighborhood holding hands and praying together. That day I witnessed the seed that God had used my daughter to plant. The first time I read this, I cried like a baby. The second time I read it, I cried like a baby. How humbling, yet how powerful the mighty weapons God uses to break down the strongholds of the enemy. A child with childlike faith and a simple prayer. Thank you, Jesus. So how about us? Don't you think we need to be using prayer one of God's greatest mighty weapons to fight the unseen enemy in this deadly spiritual war. Now, Harry, can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So far, I've talked about what prayer is, that it's all about God, that God uses to change us for his purposes, and that we's in a war, and it's a spiritual battle with an unseen enemy and that we've been given prayer as a mighty weapon for the battle. But as we will see, we have a problem. About eight years ago, my son called me and said that water was leaking through the kitchen ceiling right over the kitchen sink. Well, just above the kitchen sink is where their toilet sat on the second floor bathroom. So I tear down there, we cut a hole in the ceiling and have a look. Right then, my granddaughter, Maddie, who is four years old at the time, comes running in the kitchen. Papa, Papa, come quick. We have a problem. Well, I told her we were kind of experiencing a little problem, too, and that her problem would have to wait. She didn't buy that. She said her problem was, will we, will we, will we important? 
So I bit, and I said, so what is the problem that's so really, really, really important? To which she replied, there's a baby bunny out of its nest in the backyard. You need to catch it and put it back in the nest. <laughs> Don't you love it? So I stopped and caught the bunny. Problem solved. Well, we have a problem when we pray. And it's really, really important to know what it is and to address it prior to our prayers with God. The problem is sin. The things that go against God's word, God's will. Sin is doubting God's goodness, substituting something else for God, or just turning our backs on God. Sin started when Eve doubted God's love and instruction and let Satan plant the seed of doubt in her heart. And because of that, sin is now in our DNA. Even though a person trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior, we still have that sin nature in our heart. That is, until that great day when we go to glory and sin is no more. God is perfect and can't be in the presence of sin. So our prayer and relationship with God get out of balance when we don't address sins in our heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? And in the following verse it says, But I, the Lord, search the hearts and examine the motives. So I'm thinking, maybe our starting point when we pray should be to ask God for a heart search, for a perfect accounting, so to speak, so that a person will know what to ask forgiveness for and then repent of, so we can finally get down to real business, a real relationship with God. I'm speaking for myself. See if you can relate. One of the root causes of sin and deception in man's heart is pride. The Bible speaks of it often. Romans 12, 6, conceit. Isaiah 13, 11, God humbles the proud. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. 2 Timothy 3, 2, in the last days, there will be lots of proud people. Proverbs 8, 13, 16, 5. God detests the proud. Proverbs 16, 8. Pride goes before destruction. Proverbs 21, 4. Pride is sinful. You get the picture? The problems with pride are problem won't admit need. Can acknowledge wrong, refuses to repent, hardens heart and prevents change. And as Proverbs 16, 18 states, when left unchecked, leads to destruction. I'm going to repeat those, the problems of pride. It won't admit wrong, can't acknowledge wrong, won't admit need, can't acknowledge wrong, refuses to repent. Hardens hearts, prevents change, and in the end, leads to destruction. Note that all these things, uh, that uh, all these effects of pride are pretty much the opposite of what God wants for mankind. Summing it up, it's pretty much man saying that God isn't God, 
Rather, man is God, and that's some pretty shaky ground. And I might add that it's pretty much the culture here in the un-United States of America today as well as the Christian Church of America today. Erwin Lutzer, pastor emeritus of the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, is a gifted teacher and preacher. I've had the privilege to hear him speak at numerous promise keepers and to listen to many sermons of his sermons on the radio. Pastor Lutzer just wrote a book, The Church in Babylon, where he's comparing the church in America to the exiled Jewish people in Babylon. In this book, he talks about how churches in America don't pray anymore, and that he asked Jim Symbol of the Brooklyn Tabernacle why people line up for blocks around their church before their doors open for their Tuesday night prayer meeting. Pastor Simbla said, your people would pray too if they actually believed that God answered prayer. Pastor Luther said, please listen, I was immediately convicted of, my of the cynicism in my own heart. Many times I have not bothered to pray because I did not believe it would make a difference. We've all had our share of disillusionment with unanswered prayer. And if we have enough of these experiences, we're tempted to say, what's the use? We, forgot that every unanswered, we forget that every unanswered prayer should be a reminder to lean more directly into God. Desperation brings hope and repentance. If sermons delivered people from their sins and addictions, we'd probably be a holy people. But sermons, Bible studies, seminars, apart from the unction of the Holy Spirit and the impact of the body of Christ, have no lasting results. Consequently, believers go on for years with little emotional and spiritual development. They struggle with the same sins, the same behavior patterns, and the same inner-outer conflicts. Later in the book, Erwin Lutzer told of a Moody Pastors Conference where a pastor from Uganda talked about the great devastation that took place in his country, saying, our church didn't pray until we had these terrible massacres. Then he asked the audience, are you Americans going to seek God because of desperation, or will it have to be devastation? I'll ask you all today, which will it be? My prayer for myself and all of you is that through prayer our eyes and hearts will be open, that God will show us our hearts for what they really are and convict us of how desperate we really are and convict us of our need for His help and presence. Furthermore, that we would repent and change which will change the church, help change the culture, and hopefully change the world. Remember, it starts with God, an acknowledgement of who He is, and then a realization of who we are. And when we get these things right, our hearts will soften, our attitudes change, and a more Christ-like behavior will follow. My father used to quote, one man at dawn with his eyes multiplies. 
And this is kind of how he'd, he'd get on a roll and he'd, he'd come and then he'd just have to blurt it out. One man at dawn with, or one man with dawn in his eyes multiplies. One man awakened can awaken another. The second can awaken his next door brother. The three awake can arouse the town by turning the place upside down. The many awake can make such a fuss that it finally awakens the rest of us. I hope I don't violate any copyright laws, but I rewrote it. Please listen. One man praying can awaken another. The second praying can awaken his next door brother. The three awaken and praying can rouse the town by turning their apathy and comfort upside down. The many praying can make such a fuss that it finally awakens the hearts in the rest of us. Please, Lord Jesus, may it be so. As I wrote this sermon, I thought at this point I would go through the different types of prayer. You've heard the acronym ACTX, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. I thought I would expound on how, where, when, why, and what to pray for. But I'm not. What I will say is you can pray anytime, anywhere, any way, about anything with a sincere right heart. I've had some pretty intense shouting matches with God sitting on a plastic five-gallon bucket in my garage, only to find out later he was, I was wrong and he was right, and that he had worked it all out for his good. One suggestion I would offer, though, is that when you pray, you minimize the possible distractions, i.e., turn off your electronic devices, your phone. Find a quiet place where Satan can't send a squirrel to run by as you pray. Jesus was teaching the disciples the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, 6. And by the way, the, the, spiritual, the uh, scripture reading was right before that. Uh, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said at one point, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I believe the reason for the quiet place is so after God hears your prayer, He can speak to you. And in turn, you can hear him. That's the real reward, having God's counsel. But if we're distracted, we can miss the memo, so to speak. You see, the Father knows what you need, what you really need, before you ask him. Next, I'd like us to think about real prayer as seen in the examples of the teaching of Jesus. And they can be divided into four major groupings. In the Gospels, there are 17 references to Jesus' prayer. The four divisions or groupings are prayer at his prayers at critical moments in his life, prayer during his ministry, prayers at his miracles, and prayers for others. Since I'm running out of time, I'd like to suggest you take the time, open your Bible, read about Jesus' prayer life, then pray to God, asking him to reveal what his will is for your prayer life. And when he responds, listen intently. Listen as I 
as a fellow, or then, as a fellow I used to work for would say, get with the program. In other words, start living it out, practicing as the Spirit leads you. While individual prayer is a key discipline in a believer's life, there is also corporate or community prayer. This is when the body, the church, prays together in heart and mind. For instance, Acts 1.14, after Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were together in an upstairs room in Jerusalem. It says, They were together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Then in Acts chapter 2, we find them all together again on the day of Pentecost. And I think it's safe to assume they were in prayer. When suddenly the promised paraclete, the Holy Spirit, came upon them like flaming tongues of fire. Can you imagine the surprise and awe they must have felt? 2 Timothy 1.14 assures us that the Holy Spirit will help us and indwell in us, so much so that in Romans 8.26 it says, The Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. If you're like me, you're asking yourself, what more could God do to help us in our prayer life? I'd like to conclude by sharing a story about prayer, the change that comes from it, and then finish with a challenge. I have a friend who is a prayer warrior, pure and simple. He was instrumental in bringing a number of people together to pray for the North Scott area pastors. A small group of us prayed one night a week for those pastors for many years. The man's name is not important. His story is. He was a military man. He was a man's man. Married with a family, but not a believer. One of his daughters, a teenager, received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And at the age of 18, she got cancer and died. This brother shared with me that watching his daughter and her faith drew him to Christ Jesus, so much so that he finally gave up his life to Jesus Christ our Savior. Lock, stock, and barrel. This brother was a praying fool. If he met a person with a problem, he would stop whatever he was doing and pray with them. I would see him around town in the middle of the street with someone, and I knew what he was doing. He was praying. If he heard a siren, he'd stop and offer up a prayer for whoever and wherever it was going. He was uninhibited, unashamed. He would pray anytime, anywhere, with anybody, and he always, always made it known that he was praying to Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how I met him. I was working on a job in Eldridge, and he was working next door. I knew who he was, said hi over the fence. We visited for a few moments. I think he asked me, how you doing? 
Well, I was embroiled in a mess at home with a rebellious teenage daughter and shared that with him. You guessed it. Right there and then he grabbed me and said, we need to pray. This was the beginning of an eternal friendship and brotherhood. This brother's witness, his walk, and his prayer life drew me to Jesus. He has retired, moved away, but I think of him often. As long as I live, I'll never forget what he prayed as we prayed together one night. He thanked God for his daughter's death. in that he would never have known Jesus Christ if it was not for her death. He would never have the assurance of knowing that he would someday be reunited with her in glory and that Jesus was with her now. You see, he understood that it was God's will that his daughter was taken home, and that glory and honor for God would result in the seeming tragedy. Only in glory will we know how many lives were changed and drawn to the Father by his praying, this praying brother and his believing daughter. Prayer, my friends, is a mighty weapon in this spiritual battle that we are fighting. It is a gift and a privilege from God for God. We need to be about it every hour, everywhere, everywhere, every day. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, here's my challenge. The, the prayer committee would like input how to set up maybe a prayer room or time or space each week here at church. If you have suggestions or thoughts, the Bible says seek counsel, and that's what we're doing here. Please share them with a committee man member, Jared Eikhoff, Joe and Gary Friedman, or myself. Also, we'd like to set aside a one-hour night of prayer where we as a body, much like the apostles in Acts 1.14, get together for prayer community prayer. We'd like to set up the 4th of November. So that gives plenty of lead time to set aside one hour for prayer. I'd like to, you to think about that. I'd like you to attend. So may God bless you and help you in your prayers. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for this time we've had together. We're I pray you speak, spoke to our hearts, Lord. I pray that I was just a conduit for your word, Lord, and that it would find a home in the hearts here and that you'd produce a, a fruit a hundredfold, Lord. Lord, I, I'd ask for forgiveness, too, for not praying like we should, for not seeking you first and seeking you last and seeking you always. Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless this church. I'd ask that you'd ignite the hearts of the believers here, Lord, that we would be a praying church, and that it would change us, Lord, and in turn, we would be a, a force changing this world.
a force that would have people see you, seek you, know you, trust you. Please uh, bless those here today, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.